Okay, so Luke chapter 20, uh, verses 27 through 40 today. Uh, go ahead and turn there in your Bible, hop on Version Live, uh, and, and follow along there if you like. But as you're kind of getting settled in, I, wanna, I just want to share something with you I found this week. It was actually kind of interesting. I came across a study. Uh, it was on NBC News website. I, I don't know exactly what part of their website it was. But, but anyway, uh, I can give you the link if you want to go out and do some more research on it. Um, but it was entitled, this is what struck my interest. Fewer Americans believe in God, yet they still believe in afterlife. So I was intrigued because, to be honest, it, I would have assumed conventional wisdom would have been going away from the idea that there's an afterlife. I mean, if we're going to believe that, that life is some cosmic accident in which lightning struck a, a pool of of primordial goo and, and accidentally sprung life out, I would just assume that the natural logical extension would be that when we die, life ends. But this, this article, this research done, and it's an article that referenced uh, research done by three different universities, San Diego State University, Florida Atlantic University, and Case Western Reserve University. I don't know anything about any of those, so they may not even be credible sources, but they did the work. Um, and, and they were the ones that NBC was referencing in their article. Let me just share a couple of quotes with you. It says, In recent years, fewer Americans prayed, believed in God, took the Bible literally, attended religious services, identified as religious, affiliated with a religion, or had confidence in religious institutions. The, the lead psychologist, her name is, I, I guess it's a her, uh, Jean Twinge or Twing, Twingy, I don't know how to say her name, uh, T-W-E-N-G-E, and I guess Jean could be male or female, so who knows? You could go look that up. Uh, again, this is just the person the article references. She, she, or he, writes this. The large declines in religious practice among young adults are also further evidence that millennials are the least religious generation in memory and possibly in American history. And what they did was they looked at statistics from the 70s and 80s and, and 90s and contrasted them against statistics in 2014. Just for example, in the late 80s, only 13%, this is all adults, 13% of all adults in the U.S. had serious doubts of the existence of God. So by and large, the very predominant part of adults, a very predominant number of adults in the United States believed in the existence of God without any serious doubt. They may have had some doubt, but not serious doubt. But in 2014, only counting, only counting 18 to 29-year-olds, that would have been the millenniums, millennials, I'm sorry, 30% expressed serious doubts in God's existence. So you narrow this down from 13% of all adults to now 30% of just one age range of adults, young adults, 30%. So that's over two times the number of adults believing that there's, serious re or there's reason to seriously doubt God's existence. So it was a great increase. But in the midst of their study, there was a, a major surprise. There was a shocking surprise. And that was this, that, God's, it, it, that, that while people were, see, were, were, were beginning to deny God's existence and, and counting the Bible as irrelevant, in fact, most people today uh, would, would say that it's a book of fables and things like that. It's not necessarily God's word to us. As that's increasing, what they found was that the number of people who believe in the afterlife is also increasing. 
80% of Americans now, in 2014, 80% of American adults, all adults, not just one age range, but all adults, 80% of Americans believe in an afterlife, compared to 73% of adults in 72 to 74. So there's an increase, there's a greater number of people today that believe in the afterlife today than there was then. <laughs> and twin, whatever, this lady or man comments on this. I, I really should have checked that out a little further before I decided to, <laughs> to use this. But here we go. She, she or he says this. It was interesting that fewer people, it was interesting that fewer people participated in religion or prayed, but more believed in an afterlife. It might be part of a growing entitlement mentality, thinking you can get something for nothing. Now, I don't know if it's a sense of entitlement. I, I, I've not done the research. I'm not a psychologist. I'm a, I'm a preacher uh, and just barely that, right? Like, so so the realistically, I can't determine what's inside these people that gives them this extremely optimistic, if inconsistent view. Like there's this blind optimism that's going into this idea, right? As, as culture has, has determined, as, as culture has broadly determined that, that life is some cosmic accident... To then believe that in some way life continues on without end, that when we die we keep living, just doesn't add up. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute when you think of how inconsistent that perspective is. God truly has written eternity on our hearts. He truly has input, implanted, put in us the idea of eternity. But the sad truth is the people we live with, they really have no reason to believe that that's the case. There's blind optimism. But here's the irony. Here's the irony. The people who have no reason to believe in eternity have become eternal optimists. But the people that Jesus meets next in this passage in Luke, the, the, the next people who are going to test him and, and seek to undermine him, have all the reason in the world to believe in a resurrection and are doing everything, everything they can to deny it. The Sadducees are a people, they have the scriptures, they have the prophets, they have the patriarchs, they, 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 have every, they have the lineage, they have everything, they have the history, they have the tradition, all of it pointing to the reality that God is the God of the living. And they have Jesus standing there, right there in front of them, in the flesh, teaching in their temple. And they're doing everything they can to deny the fact that, that a resurrection, that an afterlife exists. So the question for us today, the, the, the thing I want us to consider before, but as we dive in, as we start to really study the scriptures, what do we believe about eternal life? What's our view of eternity and the resurrection? I mean, do, are, are, are we like the Sadducees? Are we going to be like the Sadducees who would reject that, that there's going to be a bodily resurrection and physical presence, uh, that, that we're going to live body and soul forever in the presence of God forever and ever as his children? Are we going to reject that idea altogether? Or are we going to be like the majority of Americans today with this eternal optimism, this blind optimism that has no foundation? Or are we going to be somewhere in the middle? Yeah, I believe it because God said it, but I really don't really don't know what that means. 
Well, in this last test, this, it's the third of three questions that Luke gives us that, that are presented to Jesus in the temple. It's the third of three. Jesus is not just going to affirm the truth of the resurrection. There really will be a resurrection. We just settle that right now. He's not just going to affirm the truth of it. He's going to give us some view into it. He's going to let us get a glimpse of what that life will look like. And so that's what we're going to see today. Luke chapter 20. We'll begin reading in verse uh, 27. Uh, and we'll read through, we'll make our way through verse 40. So let's begin reading in 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up the offspring for, and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. This woman, so, so this is the thought that came to mind as I read that passage this week. She's a man-eater. Watch out. Right? That, I mean, hollow notes, I could not get that out of my mind. It's sad, but true. This woman goes through seven brothers, never has one child. That's the premise of their question. That's the, the, the circumstance of their question. Afterward, the woman also dies. Finally, she dies. Brother number eight's like, whew, it's a load off. In the resurrection, here we go, here we go. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. So let's stop right here. Now, this is the stupidest. Like, you've always been told there's no such thing as a stupid question. This is a stupid question. Like, they are drawing out this. They, they are taking what, what was said in the Old Testament, and they are drawing it out to such levels of absurdity that they're making, they're making themselves, they, they just look foolish even asking it. The Sadducees are a people, Luke tells us right at the beginning, the Sadducees are a people who, who, who don't believe there's a resurrection. They're just another denomination. So, so they're like a denomination inside the Jew, Jewish faith, kind of like among Protestants. There's not a number of denominations. There's the, there's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And there's, there's, there's others. The, the Pharisees are the largest number. The Sadducees are a very small number. The Sadducees held a lot of power, though. They were the aristocrats. They were the leadership class. They were the wealthy. They were the people who, who held, held power and seats, uh, uh, positions in, in the priesthood and, and made decisions and led the Jewish people. So, they, so even though they were small in number, they had a lot of power. And there were a lot of similarities between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. There's a lot of commonality. They were very legalistic. They both counted on their good works to be acceptable to God. But in addition, or, or in contrast, I should say, the Pharisees believed in a doctrine of, of the resurrection, and the Sadducees were, were, were just flat out against it. There's an obligatory pastor joke that goes here. This is why they're so sad, you see, because they didn't believe in a resurrection. I know, it was bad. I should have stopped at the earlier jokes because you guys were actually laughing. If you've heard that before... I'm sorry. If you haven't heard it before, you're, you're welcome. Um, you can use that and act like it's your own if you want. Uh, don't blame it on me. But, but the, the, there's these, this obligatory joke that goes around, and people, people chuckle at it. And, and, and it might be something we laugh at today, but, but for them, this was no laughing matter. This was a serious 
serious division between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Just as an example, we get a glimpse of that in Acts 23. Paul is on trial with the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish ruling council, 70 leaders in the Jewish uh, religion. They're all gathered, and Paul is brought before them on trial. And he, he, this, this happens. I'll just read it to you. I don't think this verse is on the screen, but let me just read it to you. It says in chapter 23 of Acts, Verses 6 through 9, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the, in, in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose with, between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. So here's Paul on trial, and he throws a hand grenade off in the middle of the crowd, and all of a sudden they're arguing with one another instead of thinking about Paul. For the Sadducees say, it goes on, verse 8, the Sadducees say there's no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. So these people who would have wanted nothing to do with Paul and would not have agreed with his gospel, but simply because he agreed with the idea of the resurrection, suddenly decided there was nothing wrong with him. But the Sadducees and the Pharisees were... We're fighting. I mean, this would be like walking into a group of Presbyterians and Baptists and bringing up the idea of baptism. Or walking into a group of Baptists and, and, and Assembly of God and bringing up the speaking of tongues. This is, this is part of what, what, what we struggle with in, in our life today is this reality that we can't fully agree on the doctrines that, 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 that the Bible demonstrates or teaches. It's really rooted in even where we come to be Protestants in our perspectives. Martin Luther was protesting against the doctrines of the Catholic Church. And as the Protestants began to protest, divisions arose among the Protestants. Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli, for example, couldn't come to an agreement. They, they agreed on a number of things. But they couldn't have come to an agreement on the view of communion or the Lord's Supper. Luther is a consubstantiationist, meaning that he believes that, the, 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 that Christ is present. He's not, he's not Roman Catholic. He's not transubstantiation, where the, where the bread becomes the body of Christ and the, and the juice becomes the blood of Christ. He's not a, he doesn't hold to transubstantiation. He holds to consubstantiation, which is that, that, that he's present in, around, under the elements. And so as you eat the bread, Christ is there. As you drink the juice or the wine, Christ is there. Zwingli was a memorialist. He had a memorial view. These things are representative of. This is kind of where we stand. This is the teaching that we would, we would offer up. Is it, it's a remembrance that, it's, it, that, that Christ isn't spiritually there. He's not physically there. Do we experience his grace as we, as we humble ourselves in obedience and remember his work on the cross? Absolutely. But not because of the element, but because of the truth of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. But this, this distinction was so strong, it was so serious that, that there was a point when they were meeting together and, and Luther looked at him and he said, we're, of, we're not of the same spirit. Luther would, in fact, I think it was on both sides that they would deny one another's Christianity. They could not come to an agreement over this. Well, that's where these Pharisees and these Sadducees were 
fighting over this. And so, so the Sadducees, they come asking their question. It's, it's, not, it's, it, it, it's, it's not that they were seeking to affirm Jesus uh, over, the, over the Pharisees or against the Pharisees. It's not as serious as if Jesus had sided with the Romans as against the, the Jews it, as when they questioned him about giving taxes to, to Caesar. But the question is no small thing. They're the ruling class. They're the power. They're the authority in Jerusalem. If they don't agree with Jesus and they side with the Pharisees, in the, in, if he sides with the Pharisees in the view of the resurrection, then this is all the more reason for them to get rid of him. If he doesn't affirm their view, you see the problem there? If, if, if Jesus, the, the man who is God, doesn't bow to then tell them that they're right, then he can't possibly be who, he's, who he claims to be there's even more reason to get rid of him. Well, that's a big problem. Because who are we? Pots? To call the potter, to tell the potter who he is or what he should do or what his doctrine is. That's exactly what they were doing. And I don't know exactly why. I don't know the deep motive of why Jesus would answer this particular question because it's really so crazy. But I think because it, it strikes at the heart of his gospel. He doesn't sidestep this. He doesn't answer with the question. He doesn't refuse to answer in any way. He gives them a biblical answer. Verse 34 says, and Jesus said to them, he begins to answer their, their question. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection." But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered to him, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. See, Jesus doesn't just show them that he holds the doctrine of, 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 of the resurrection. He doesn't just show them or teach them that he holds to a view that, that we will be resurrected, that we will live eternally as body and soul. He shows them why. He does this first by contrasting their, their, their view, their common view, their drawing on conventional wisdom as an experience for what's going to happen in eternity. And then he does it from the Scripture by drawing on Moses, you'll recognize that when they asked the question, they drew on Moses. Moses wrote for us. But Jesus is like, hey, let me, let me tell you what Moses said. Listen, for those who believe, for those who believe Jesus' gospel is good news because the hope it provides in the present life 
is fulfilled in the resurrected life to come. It is the, the, the hope that we have now, the hope that the gospel that Jesus teaches us now is, is fulfilled in the life to come. If there is no resurrection, there is no gospel. If there is no resurrection, there is no good news. Jesus had been in the temple every day since arriving in Jerusalem. He came into the city. He drove out the, the money changers and the merchants. He pushes them out of the temple and then comes back every day and he teaches the gospel of his coming eternal kingdom. That's what he was doing. That's what the scripture tells us he was doing. He didn't do it without resistance. They were coming to him, asking questions about his authority, sending spies to, to catch him in some mistruth or something he would misspeak. And now the, the, the Sadducees are taking their turn, coming, seeking to undermine his, his position. But here's the reality. If he does not affirm the resurrection, then how good is his news? If the good news is that for, the, for eternity, things keep on going as they are. Just keep on rolling. He's come to establish an eternal throne, an eternal kingdom. And, and, and in their mind, there's some perspective, I guess, that, that Israel would be raised up and eternally it would never, ever again be oppressed or overthrown. But life would just keep on going. People would continue to die. And then... Because of that, people would continue to mourn. And, and because of that, people would continue to suffer. But not suffer simply because of death. Suffer because we are constantly dying. The moment we begin to breathe, we get, be, begin a process toward the grave. The moment that we take our first breath, we begin a process, a slow walk, if you will, toward the grave. Oh, it may look really good for the first 40, 50 I thought 40 was the end. Like, I thought I was going to, when I turned 40, I thought, man, I'm about dead. I got to get this stuff done. <laughs> but there's a reality. The first breath is the first step toward the grave. It's not good news. If all we're doing is going to continue to die and mourn and suffer and, and fight amongst one another, divisions ruling our view, enduring all manners of hardship, that's not good news at all. But thankfully, thankfully, Jesus' answer shows them just how wrong they are. The good news is this, this present life does not provide a sufficient vantage point from which to make plans for eternity. Jesus does. The Sadducees' big fault was that they were measuring the eternal life on what they experienced today. They're drawing on the, the leveret marriage. The law from Moses was, you can read about it in Deuteronomy 25, something like that. I'll look it up later. I'll look it up for you if you want to know. It's, it's Deuteronomy, end of Deuteronomy 
uh, I want to say 25 verses 5 through 10 or something like that. 26, 5 through 10. Anyway, it doesn't, doesn't matter at this point. The, the leveret marriage was literally as they expressed it. If a woman is married and her husband dies and his brother lives with them, she is to marry that brother. The brother is then supposed to have, uh, is supposed to take her as his wife, uh, have a child, and the firstborn child would really be counted toward the dead brother's line, lineage. So that the dead brother in, in, in whatever, I mean, I guess if eternity doesn't reign for them, I don't understand why it would even matter. But, but realistically, so that the dead brother's name and his, his land and his money would continue to belong to his family. And they're, they're really drawing from this. They're, they're really seeking to understand what eternity will be like based on their cu- current perspective, based on their current experience. So the problem is this. There may be some influence in this life to the next. Jesus says, store up your treasures in heaven where neither wrath nor moth nor rust destroy, right? So there is some influence. Like we can live today with eternity in view. But life today does not define life in the age to come. I mean, it would be like asking, looking at everything around and listening to the voices of, of today would be like asking a housefly that lives maybe 15 or 30 days, what's life supposed to be like? It wouldn't have a clue. That wouldn't be a, a credible source. It wouldn't have any understanding. They have no grasp. They have no vantage point from which to view what life should really be like. And that's exactly what the Sadducees are doing. The good news is this, is that this life, the, the one where we live today, the one where we struggle today, the one, the one where a friend of mine is on a hunting trip, a pastor friend of mine on a hunting trip, taking his vacation in the middle of his trip, sitting in a tree stand, he gets a call. A teenage girl in your ministry was killed in a car accident. That does not define the life to come. That is not what we have to expect in the days to come. That is not what the eternal kingdom will be measured by. Not not our mourning, not our suffering, not our difficulties. And truly, not even marriage. In fact, one of the perspectives he draws out here, out of the three three perspectives he lets us see, marriage as we know it is going to cease to exist. It's not going to be anymore. But it will be replaced by a greater marriage. Let's be real. <laughs> some of you, most of you are young, so you, maybe, maybe you're not thinking this, but some of you might actually be thinking, that's really good news. This difficult marriage is going to be over, and I won't have to sin to get out of it. It's just going to be finished. We'll be able to live together forever, but it, man, we won't have to be married. I hope that's not your story. I, I, others of you are thinking, oh, I love my wife. I love my husband so much. I cannot imagine not being married forever and ever and ever. Jesus lets us see there's going to be something greater. There's, marriage isn't, isn't the, the end-all, be-all. Marriage, in fact, will cease to exist, but it's going to be replaced by a greater marriage. In, a, in, a, um, in one of the Ask Pastor John episodes, uh, podcast episodes, uh, uh, Randy Alcorn answered a question that was posed. The question was, will there be sex in heaven? Like, will there be sexual activity in heaven? Because that's what we're really worried about. We couldn't care less about marriage, right? We just want to know, is there going to be sexual? That's our culture. That's the the view today. Like, the Sadducees were wondering about marriage. We're concerned about sex. 
Is there going to be sexual activity in heaven? In the midst of his answer, he points this out. The Bible does not teach there is no marriage in heaven. In fact, if you go back and read Jesus' words, he's not saying there is no marriage. He just says we're not going to be marrying and giving in marriage. It doesn't teach that there is no marriage in heaven. The Bible teaches that there is one marriage in heaven. Christ married to his bride, the church. When we step into eternity, when Christ makes all things new, we sit down at the wedding feast of the Lamb and we'll raise a glass to our groom, Jesus Christ. And, and I think, I, I just, I got this feeling that the, the marriage that we enjoyed on the earth or the marriage that we endured on the earth will be fully just a type and shadow that gave us a picture of what to expect for all eternity married to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Marriage as we know it's replaced by a greater marriage. So we don't want to look at it today as if it is exactly how it will be. He goes on, the threat of death will be displaced by the certainty of life. He, he says they, they don't marry and give in marriage because they don't die. Because they're like the angels. Death will be no more. There will be no threat of it. There will, there will be no no. no, no uh, uh, doom or dread hanging out in front of us that one day this all ends. And we're not going to become angels. Uh, some folk theology, some, it's like a folk tale, right? Like we develop it over time. It has no biblical foundation. But, but, but folk theology, there's some folk theology that, that thinks that we become angels when we die. That's a lie. It's not true. In eternity, we are created. If you remember, if you were here last week, we're created in the image of God. And his work, his purpose in salvation is to restore that image in us. And so in eternity, that image will be fully restored in his glory. We will be fully recognizing, fully imaging him. We'll be more like God in eternity than we will be angels, but we'll be equal with him. doesn't mean that there's a hierarchy, like we're going to be walking around commanding angels. That's not what Jesus is saying. But we'll be equal to them. What does that mean? I think Philip Ryken gives us a, a great expression of this. He teaches this clearly, I think, and he says this. Angels were made for the glory of God. So are we. Angels devote their worship to God. And so do we. If we know the living God, unfallen angels never sin and neither will we. When we finally reach the glories of heaven, angels never get married, which is a point of comparison that comes right out of this passage. We will, be not, we will not be married in heaven either. But the main point of the comparison here is that the angels are immortal. They will not die. And neither will we. No more phone calls in tree stands. No more sickness rotting and eating at our fleshly bodies. No more threat of a bad report from the doctor. We will not die. The life that began will continue forever and ever and ever and ever. And I could keep saying it till Christ comes back and that won't be enough because it'll keep on going forever and ever and ever. That's the idea. 
We will not die. The threat that death now holds on us will be displaced by the certainty that we will live forever. And then he tells us again, the third perspective of the rebel's punishment is replaced by the son's inheritance. He says it. He says in verse, let me get back to it. Oh, man, I've lost my place. But the head that, that, but that the dead, no, 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 nor are given in marriage. Verse 36, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are what? Sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. We're rebels. We've been rebellious. We didn't have to choose to sin. It was in our very nature. We were sinners. We were fallen And because we were, because we were sinners, we began to choose to sin. Because of our identity, because of our fallenness, because of our sinful nature, we began choosing to sin. Nobody had to teach your child how to lie. Nobody had to teach your child to be rebellious. It happens naturally. And and, and, and we're rebels. We don't deserve anything from him. But because of what Christ has done, we will be his Children, we will be his sons. We won't just be people in his kingdom. We won't simply be citizens. We'll be children of the king. And it's vital, you see, this is vital, you understand, that he says sons and not sons and daughters, because in that day, in their view, only the sons got an inheritance. We will be male and female in heaven. There will be gender in heaven. There will be that kind of sex, not sexual activity likely, but but there will be genders. We will be male and female in heaven. But as sons, we will all gain, be given, be gifted an eternal inheritance. Paul points this out. And to the, to the church in Rome, Romans chapter 8, verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Instead of getting what our sin deserves, instead of getting what we deserve, we'll share in Jesus' inheritance. All that his perfect life deserved, we will be given. But Jesus isn't finished. He's got another perspective to share. He moves on to the, to the second part of his answer. The good news is this. Lack of understanding God's word does not negate God's promises or God's power to accomplish his promises. The Sadducees didn't understand the scriptures. In fact, in Mark's telling and Matthew's telling of this account, Jesus actually confronted them on it. He said, you're, you're thinking this because you don't understand the scripture or the power of God. You don't understand what God has said or what God can do. This goes to show just because somebody uses Bible verse, it doesn't mean that they're making a biblical argument, right? Get this. Just because someone starts throwing Bible verses doesn't mean it's a biblical argument. There's all kinds of false teachers, false prophets, false, false, false uh, teaching out there. It's all over the place. And just because somebody knows the Bible doesn't make them biblical. And the Sadducees obviously weren't biblical. Having drawn from Moses' teaching, Moses' law back in Deuteronomy, they made, they made an assumption. But drawing from the same place from Moses' teaching, the burning bush experience, in fact, 
Where Moses walks up and he's like, oh, who do I say has sent me? Who, who are you, essentially? And God introduces himself as I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God of your fathers, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't say I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like it's a past tense thing, like because they're dead, I'm no longer their God. I currently am. I am. I exist as their God right now. Right now. And Jesus goes on to point out that he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. But in addition to that, if they had just been reading the the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, it's all over. Isaiah 25, 8 says this, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and reproach of his people, and he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken Isaiah 26, 19, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. I don't know how clear it has to be. Oh, but wait a minute. They were rejecting the prophets. They were killing the prophets. They weren't liking what they had to say. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Just for time's sake, there's another one, but just for time's sake, I want to share my favorite. Job 19, 25 through 27. Job is in the midst of the depths of his suffering and his, we'll call them friends, gathered around him, telling him how screwed up he was. You must have done something terrible to, to make God this angry. And in the middle of that, he says this, For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. My very own eye will see my Redeemer standing in my very own body that has died and rotted. But I will stand in my flesh and I will see him. What wonderful news that is. What a beautiful promise that is. The the, the Old Testament scriptures are filled with references to the bodily resurrection. The Sadducees were rejecting it because they didn't know the scripture and they didn't know the God that wrote the scripture. But the good news is this, their rejection of this teaching, their ignorance of this teaching, their misunderstanding of the scriptures didn't didn't keep God from being able to accomplish it. Just because they didn't believe it, just because we live in a world that blindly perceives it, that has no foundation for it, it's just, it feels good, I don't want to die and be no more, it feels a whole lot better to think somewhere I'll be floating around in euphoria. That sounds a lot better. It doesn't matter what people misunderstand. It doesn't negate God's power nor his teaching. The resurrection is coming. Our first breath in this life is a, is a breath, is a step toward the grave. But as we step into the grave, for those who are counted worthy, we have the hope of resurrection. Let me just bring that last perspective out. This is part of the first part of his answer, but I want you to see it because it's foundational to the good news, to the gospel that Jesus taught. The good news is this. Jesus has made the way so that the unworthy 
can be counted worthy to receive these eternal blessings. You see, he comes to this point. He's teaching, he's giving them the answer, and he says, the sons of this age, they marry and they're given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy. I just want to point this out. Not everybody's headed to eternity. In fact, if I had read you a minute ago a passage from Daniel, it demonstrates that everyone will rise, some to judgment, some to condemnation, and some to eternal life. Not, not, not everyone will live this resurrected life in glory. Only those who are counted worthy. And Jesus doesn't break it out here. He doesn't give us the full teaching of how that happens, but, but we get a clue. He speaks in a passive sense. He doesn't say to those who earn their position. He, he doesn't say who make themselves worthy. He says to those who are counted worthy. This is not something we do to ourselves. This is something that's done to us. God counts us worthy. God considers us innocent or guilty. God's the one that determines who raises to life and who raises to judgment. The the teaching is broken out further and further in, in different places. You can see it in Jesus' teaching and across the New Testament. The reality is this. The very fact that Jesus stood here in this temple teaching this truth and telling them that there was a resurrection demonstrated that it was good to look forward to it. And they should be questioning right now, well, what does that mean? How can I be counted worthy? In John chapter 6, he's entered into a conversation with, with, with the, the Pharisees or with, with people who he had just fed. He would fed the 5,000, the multitude. He'd fed them. And, and they came looking for him the next day. And they come to him and they enter into a conversation. And they recognize it's a spiritual conversation. And they ask the question. What is the work of God? Like, what do we do to do the work of God? And he says, the work of God is to believe in whom he has sent. If we want to be counted worthy, it's not, it's not our works we believe in. It's his. If we want to be counted worthy, it's not our sacrifice that matters. It's his. If we want to be counted worthy, it's not our eternal life that matters. It's his. Believe in him. And when you feel like doing, lay your deadly doing down and fight to believe in him. That's the, 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 the whole effort, the whole point of the Christian life is to quit trusting self and start trusting Jesus. Believe in him. And you will be saved. He will count you worthy, not because you are, but because Jesus is. So what are you going to do about the resurrection and about your views of eternal life? Will you lean toward the Sadducees, seek to reject it? I hope not especially not anybody sitting in this room. 
Well, we trust more in conventional wisdom and, and teaching. I had, you know, it's just out there. It's going to be like we're going to live forever. I hope not. Because that blind kind of optimism doesn't do much for our life today. It doesn't provide much hope today. Or will you trust the teaching of Jesus? Let me just close with this quote from J.I. Packer about the differences between that optimism and a real hope. Optimism hopes for the best without any guarantee of its arriving and is often no more than a whistling in the dark. Christian hope, by contrast, is faith looking ahead to the fulfillment of the promises of God. As when the Anglican burial service inters the corpse in sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. Optimism is a wish without warrant. Christian hope is a certainty guaranteed by God himself. Optimism reflects ignorance as to whether good things will ever actually come. Christian hope expresses knowledge that every day of his life and every moment beyond it, the believer can say with truth on the basis of God's own commitment that the best is still to come. Good news is this, brothers and sisters, the hope of Jesus' gospel, the hope that Jesus' gospel provides in this life will be fulfilled in the life to come. Will you trust him? Let's pray. Father, we are blessed. Even calling you Father, as I think about what that means, how good you are to us. Would you move on us and in us? Help us, Father. Live every day in light of the resurrection. Help us every day. Trusting in Christ that we might count, be counted worthy. Would you help us today? that we might purposely and passionately glorify you in our worship until the day comes where we stand in your presence and in our flesh and with our own eyes, we get to see our Redeemer. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.